In our last episode, we talked about independent record stores like Phantom, Waterfront, Red Eye, and Ogogo. But those names were more than just stores. They were also record labels, and hugely successful ones at that. They were some of the biggest players in the 80s Australian independent music scene. But what success meant for an indie label in the 80s changed in the 90s. That change came in the form of new competition. And for better or worse, the label that changed everything was Ruart. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the record label Ruart. Getting a record deal isn't easy. It never has been and never will be. There are always going to be a thousand aspiring pop stars for every record contract. Over the decades, and especially in the 80s, the power has been with the major record companies or the major labels. In the late 80s, they were known as the Big Six. Warner Brothers, CBS, Polygram, MCA, BMG, and EMI. Major record companies, fairly or unfairly, were seen as these people who travel into the depths to pluck out some obscure talent and set them on the road to stardom. You've seen this story in lots of music films. The record company exec just happens to be at the right club to catch the right show and a star is born. But what they never talk about is what is in the deal. The standard major record label deal, circa mid-80s. When you sign on the dotted line with a company like Warner Brothers or CBS, they basically own your music. The music you create, known as masters, belongs to the label, and often forever. The chances are you've signed away your publishing too, which means the songs, or the idea of the music that you create, you also don't own. What you get in exchange for your finished works, for your masters, and the idea of your works, your publishing, is money. But even that money isn't money. It's a loan, and it's called an advance. You have to pay back that advance with your sales. The label can give you, let's say, a $100,000 advance. That's a lot of money. CDs in the 90s cost around 30 Australian dollars, but you might only make $2 a CD. And that $2 goes towards paying back your advance first. So you will need to sell 50,000 albums to pay back the record company's $100,000. Once you pay that money back, the next $2 goes to you. Some bands never make any money off their record company. They are just paying back a loan throughout their entire career. What I explained is a generalization, but that was mostly the deal. And by the 80s, enough bands knew that a major label deal was a bad rap. But equally importantly, there was enough smart music fans who wanted to run labels that didn't want to own a band's masters and didn't want to treat bands like someone who owed them money. They were happy to start labels that helped a band distribute their music and not much more. Importantly, the bands kept the rights in their own music. This was the indie label scene, circa mid-80s. What you don't get from an indie label deal, in the 80s at least, was much, if any, money. Major labels will spend big bucks on you, send you on tours, pay for a top-notch studio, pay for a producer, and pay for a film clip. You don't get this stuff on an indie label. Indie bands toured themselves, saved up some money, and paid for their own studio time. The indie label would pay for the manufacturer of records, and then split the profits with the band. Oh, and that money that a major label might spend to support you, like give you money to make a film clip, that's also an advance. That's also just more debt. In Australia, where the market was so small, these indie labels were running pretty low on resources. An indie label couldn't afford to print up too many extra records just to sit on shelves. Film clips from Australian indie labels in the 80s were few and far between, and probably paid for by the bands. And who would play them anyway? They didn't get on TV, so it wasn't worth it. Even coloured record sleeves would be a challenge. And I talk about deals, often there wasn't any actual written down deal. The indie scene was a lot of handshakes and promises. 
it was shockingly casual. But at least you could hear it on the radio, on stations like Triple J and Community Radio. And at least you could buy the records in independent record stores. And you could see a few shows, read a few interviews, and maybe the man could have a minor hit somewhere, play some bigger shows, get a good support slot, maybe a small tour to the UK, and maybe, just maybe, earn some money. That was life for a good indie band in Australia circa the mid-80s. And if the records were a little hard to find, or to find out about, there was no denying the greatness of some of that music. That underground system and that major label commercial system rarely met in the 80s. Basically, Australian indie darling Nick Cave was on one side and pop stars like Kylie Minogue was on the other. Yet, by 1995, Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue released a single together, an unlikely song about a man killing his lover called Where the Wild Roses Grow. It reached number two in the mainstream Australian charts and was a decent hit throughout Europe. For Kylie, the neighbour's soap opera teen star who had gone into pop music, it was the start of her move towards indie credibility. For Nick Cave, it was the underground scene moving overground and declaring him a legend to a new young audience. Either way, whatever barrier there was between the indie scene and the mainstream was shattering in the mid-90s, and the first brick thrown was by a Sydney label named Ruart. The origins of Ruart and whose idea it was and who did what has been in contention. It has also been a court case. So here's what I do know. Ruart at the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s was run by three men with three very different talents. And they were Chris Murphy, or CM as everyone called him, was the manager of InXS. He was flying high in the 80s because InXS were flying high in the 80s. He was cashed up, had an impressive international contact list in the music biz, and knew a thing or two about international success. Number two was Sebastian Chase. Chase in the 80s was the manager of the New Zealand band Dragon and had started his own label called Chase Records, who were distributed by CBS. It wasn't alternative stuff, but it gave Chase the knowledge to run a label within a major record label. The third man in all this was the much younger Justin Van Stom. Justin snuck into an In Excess show as a teenager and found himself talking to the manager. He ended up working for Murphy in his music publishing company. Van Stom was a huge music fan and he was more connected to and closer in age to the young bands that would ultimately come to Ruart. So what was the big idea about Ruart? The idea was, in a way, to put bands on the path that In Excess had pioneered. In Excess were one of the biggest bands in the world by the late 80s. They had a US number one hit in 1988 with Need You Tonight, and the album Kick would go on to sell a huge four bazillion copies worldwide. They were certainly untouchable gods by the time I discovered the band, who were ever present on radio in Australia. If you took all the 80s bands on Waterfront, Red Eye, Phantom, or Go Go and their peers, I'm not sure they even sold 10 million albums together. That's the kind of numbers In Excess would do on one album. So it's easy to forget that In Excess cut their teeth as a pub rock band, touring Australia's pubs and clubs, then fighting hard in the US with lots more touring before finally breaking it big. And now that we know it could be done, could we do it again and faster? And what if Murphy could get someone to bankroll that idea? So Ruart was designed to cut that whole process down. Through connections, and mainly Murphy's connections, the idea was to put Australian bands on an international platform. Part of the idea was just to throw money at them. Let's take a good Australian band and send them to work with a US producer. Let's give them a film clip that could be played on MTV. Let's get them on some big tours right from the start. No years on the road. If you can break it outside of Australia, the reward would be enormous. What made the idea of Ruart interesting to America at least was two things. One, the Australian angle. Australia was still far away and exotic to America. Even the name Ruart 
gives away that it was conceived when Crocodile Dundee was a thing. Ruart was also spelt with a lowercase r and an uppercase a in the middle in a really annoying fashion. Two, no one would know it yet, but the rise of alternative music would help make Ruart sexy. The record industry had already started to look at the indie scene as a source for new talent. Stars of the US college rock scene like R.E.M., The Replacements, They Might Be Giants, Meryl Chili Peppers, had all signed major label deals. And there had been music moguls who had vanity labels, like David Geffen, who put his name to Geffen Records. He would, in 1990, start a hard rock and alternative label called DGC and sign Nirvana, Weezer, and even super indie, super credible Sonic Youth. What it meant to be indie was changing worldwide. So Murphy found himself on an international platform and ready to roll some Australian bands onto the world stage. He had Chase run the label and Van Stom would do A&R. A&R was artist and repertoire. He was in charge of finding the bands, signing the bands and working with the bands. All he needed was someone to fund it. Ruart started in 1988, based out of Sydney. After a bit of shopping around, a deal was signed with Polygram in Australia, one of the big six major record labels at the time. Polygram were making a calculated bet that one of the Ruart bands could become the next in excess, or at least a few would do okay and they would make their money back. The deal was reportedly around $2 million for setting up the label, paying for the first batch of band costs, recording costs and marketing costs. Chump change, really, if they found the next in excess. Here's a clip from a Ruart showreel, voiced by TV personality Clive Robertson, talking about the aim of Ruart. Mr Murphy started Ruart in 1988. He looked at groups that tried to make their own way overseas and thought, no, I shall organise you and make you one working unit. And he did, he called it Ruart. And the proof is in the pudding, because Ruart has worked. So Justin Van Stom went looking for bands from all walks of life, including going into the Australian independent music scene. One thing to note about the start of Ruart is that when everyone was talking about what it could do and how it could be this fast track for new bands, no one was really talking about alternative music, whatever the hell that is. Some people might have been thinking about that scene as a place to find good bands, but this was 1988, three years before Nirvana. And Ruart were not the kind of label that would get stuck in one genre or one scene. There were smart people at Ruart, and they probably knew the rule that has always been true about underground music scenes, that today's biggest trend was yesterday's underground. The problem was finding the right underground. So Ruart went for commercial pop bands and independent bands. Heck, Ruart even started a jazz division at one point. But Van Storm was able to tap into the thriving alternative scene that was underfunded and underexposed. The rude health of that scene can be heard on Young Blood, a 12-track compilation of new bands released in 1988 and was the very first release on Ruart. Young Blood is an interesting slice of where Australian indie music was going by the late 80s. The 12 songs by 12 different young Australian-leaning bands lean towards more the melodic, jangly, folky or poppy side. Most interesting for me is that you can't hear much of the influence of Australia's biggest indie darlings of the 80s, Melbourne's Nick Cave, Sydney's Radio Birdman, or the Brisbane's The Saints. It's possibly a reflection of the taste of the men behind Ruart, and I assume mostly Justin Van Stomp, but also perhaps that 80s sound had reached a dead end and it was time for something new. Some names on the Youngblood compilation went on to sign recording contracts with Ruart. It opened with one of the future signings, the Trilobites, with their track All Hail The New Light.
The most successful band on that first Youngblood compilation would be the Hummingbirds, who closed the Youngblood compilation with their incredible single, Hindsight. Other bands on the compilation that went onto the Ruart roster included Martha's Vineyard, Crash Politics, and Tortals and True. Even some of the bands that didn't graduate to a recording contract featured people who would. Who's Gerald would feature two members who would later sign to Ruart and record under the name Custard. It's also interesting that the bands came from all over Australia, not just Sydney, but also Brisbane, Perth, and Melbourne. Usually, if you were from Melbourne, you signed to an indie Melbourne label. It was just easier. It's another indie rule that Ruart quietly broke. Thing was, some of these bands weren't that new. In indie circles, the Hummingbirds were already a big deal, having released a single on the acclaimed Phantom Records. Tortals and True had released an album that was distributed by Sebastian Chase's Chase Records. The Trilobites had released an album on Waterfront. Many of these bands had made inroads in some scene. This was the trick of Ruart's early years. They basically came and raided the indie scene. Youngblood represented the bands who said yes. And there were plenty of bands who said no. Their tactics certainly bent the noses of people involved in the indie scene. Who the fuck were these guys? None of them at this time had any indie cred. But it's easy to see why bands were interested in signing with Ruart. It was easy street compared to indie labels. Ruart offered indie bands more money to record, more money to make film clips, more money to tour and play in front of people, and more money to, you know, just live on. Heck, they even made coloured sleeves. You had to pay it back, but at least you got to make a lot of stuff. But unlike indie labels, Ruart owned the masters for their bands. It was a conventional major label deal in so many ways. Some bands balked at Ruart, who they didn't trust. Also, rights to masters was a red line in the indie scene. Others wanted to honour the labels that had gave them a start, but they managed to lure a couple of significant bands from the indie scene away. The Hummingbirds from Phantom and Ratcat from Waterfront and suddenly those indie labels had to play a different game just to keep the bands they already had. By 1989, Ruart's second year, they were on fire. The Youngblood compilation went gold, selling 35,000 copies in Australia. That's a huge amount for these mostly unknown indie bands, and their music was now in the hands of far more people than ever before. Triple J picked up on Tortals and True, and their 1989 single Trust being a big hit on the station. Martha's Vineyard released their only album, a self-titled effort, in 1989. The Hummingbirds' first album, Love Buzz, was released in October 1989. The album was a big hit for the indie scene, charting at number 31 in the regular Australian charts, and the band were releasing singles and touring the album well into 1990. So I'm going to count it as a 1990 album for the sake of this story. It's one of the very best albums of the era. So from that album, Love Buzz, here's the big single, Blush. She said she 
At the ARIA Awards, Australia's Music Awards, The Hummingbirds were nominated for Breakthrough Artist Single and Breakthrough Artist Album. Ruart had three acts nominated in the category of Best New Talent, The Hummingbirds, Tortowson True and Martha's Vineyard. No wins, but a solid start. 1990 was another killer year for Ruart. They had their first big success away from the so-called alternative or indie world with a hit album and single by Absent Friends, a band formed by members of 80s rock band The Models and featuring In Excess's bass player. One of the Absent Friends singers, Wendy Matthews, released her own debut solo album in 1990, which was also a hit in Australia. Absent Friends and Wendy Matthews would go on to win three ARIA awards the next year. Back on the indie side though, a second compilation of Youngblood was released in 1990. There was, again, a lot of young talents scattered throughout. Future members of Even appear as The Swarm. The hard-hitting The Mark of Cain appeared and would ultimately sign to Ruart and release several albums. Opening the compilation was a young Sydney three-piece who would be one of the label's big successes. They were called Ratcat and they would release an EP called Tingles later in the year. It would be Ruart's first number one single, even though it's an EP. But the song that broke them was this one, That Ain't Bad by Ratcat. In 1991, Ratcat provided Ruart with their first number one album. True to form, the band toured with In Excess. It seems that that was one of Ruart's main tricks. Martha's Vineyard and Absent Friends had also been gifted In Excess support slots. Sometimes I think Ruart was just CM Murphy's way of getting a slice of all these support bands that opened for In Excess. 1991 also saw big hits from commercial acts. Winnie Matthews had more hits. The Screaming Jets. A very traditional pub rock band from Newcastle scored a number four single with Better. Still, Ruart had Ratcat and the Hummingbirds as their indie stable who released albums in 1991. A third edition of Youngblood was also released and there are a number of bands that would go on to make great albums in the 90s who I plan to cover. Underground Lovers, The Welcome Mat, The Foves, Custard and Glide. In the middle of 1991, it probably felt like good times for Ruart would never stop. They were acclaimed, their bands were having hits, they seemed to have captured the spirit of the times. They had a stable of artists that people were excited about, whose work so far was loved, yet people still felt like their best work was still to come. They had contacts, international releases in the works, and a solid plan for world domination. But then someone decided Ruart needed to change things up, and that someone was Chris Murphy. Ruart's original deal with Polygram was three years, from 1988 to 1991, and everything wasn't exactly roses behind the scene. Ruart were making a big splash, but driving up costs by doing it. They had some big hits, but not enough, and critical acclaim won't feed my children. It was a clash of culture, 
One side, the major label funding the thing, wanted more instant success that came with bigger budgets and investment. The other side, Ruart, believed artists needed to develop, play, find audiences, and have big records come later in their career. You can see it in the careers of Ratcat and the Hummingbirds, who were indie bands polished into pop stars ready for export. Same with Cleopatra Wong, featuring two members of the Go-Betweens, whose film clip for the single Thank You is this weird, bright pop clip of Amanda Brown and Lindy Morrison in some flowery fantasy land. All this stuff did okay in Australia, but it didn't get overseas. It didn't help that overseas was starting to get obsessed by this new grunge thing. Still, there was value in Ruart. They had the contracts of several hot acts and an already impressive catalogue of albums. Whether Polygram wanted to renew or not, Ruart saw no loyalty in staying with Polygram and put themselves out to the highest bidder. And that highest bidder was Warner Brothers, who offered more money and a better deal internationally. It also helped that InXS was signed to a Warner label, Atlantic Records. For the band on Ruart and their managers, this erased all the good work they had done so far. All the people in these companies had worked with the bands, understood the bands, and championed the bands were now gone. Now they're on a new label, Warners, and the people there often knew nothing about the roster of Ruart, and they were being asked to break the bands. Murphy's attitude was this, just get on a plane, set up the meetings, meet the new people, and get back to work. It was pretty easy to say when he just got a whole lot of extra money. For the bands and the managers, many of whom were scraping by on advances and not making any real money, it was a tough mission to start again. These bands could not just be dumped on another label. This is where Ruart's understanding of the indie world falls down. Indie bands rallied against cookie-cutter 80s bands. They needed to be treated differently. The move to Warners killed the momentum of Ratcat, The Hummingbirds, and a number of other acts. It would be the mark of Ruart. Between 1988 and 1991, three years, Ruart was distributed by Polygram before changing to Warners. Between 1992 and 1996, four years, Ruart would jump from Warners to shock distribution and ultimately to BMG. Every time it was leveraging for a better deal. Every time it was the bands that got fucked over. And the developing bands weren't the only ones at Ruart to get fucked. By 1991, Sebastian Chase and Justin Van Stom both left Ruart. All were fired. Both would later sue Ruart for their piece of the pie. There was a problem with Ruart and these two copped the blame. Of course, cutting out the two men who started the label before signing a new mega deal with Warner Brothers meant a lot of money for Murphy. And I'm not saying that's what he intended to do, or that that was his motivation, but that was what happened. In Murphy's memoir, he never mentions the names Sebastian Chase or Justin Van Stom, although he references two people who knew from around who worked on the label. In Craig Matheson's wonderful book about the Australian music scene in the 90s, The Sell-In, Craig says that Chase and Murphy were good friends and even holidayed together. It's funny how these things go. Sebastian Chase went on to Phantom, the label that originally had the Hummingbirds and would become an important figure in Australia's independent music scene. Van Storm would go deeper into music and artist management, handling Def FX, Grinspoon and others. We will see them both again in later episodes. But Ruart carried on with a new team. 1992 saw the release of another Ratcat album, That Flopped, and a Hummingbirds EP, That Flopped. Other indie releases that flopped included a Tour Towson True album, and a mini-album by Cleopatra Wong. But they did have some success, for example, with Melbourne's Weddings Parties Anything, who were previously signed to Warner in Australia, and they still had Wendy Matthews. As their pop and commercial rock side became more successful, Ruart tried to create a new label for their alternative stuff. Called Ra Records, it had a new logo and would try to be as cool as competing labels like Waterfront, or GoGo, or Red Eye, or probably more likely Murmur, who we will talk about. Over the next few years, Ruart would continue to be an important player in the alternative music scene with Ra. 
they would sign UMI, Custard, Augie March, The Mark of Cain, and many others. That goal of finding the Knicks in excess, a band who would conquer the world, or at least America, would never happen to Ruat. In that way, the label was a failure. Ruat ran from 1988 until 1996. In that time, none of the bands they signed ever had a hit in the US, not the so-called alternative ones or the commercial ones. Why? Well, lots of reasons. But for me, it comes down to Ruart not being able to tell people why these bands were special. They were pretty good at finding them, and maybe that's just because they had a big checkbook. But instead of taking these special bands and encouraging them, Ruart tried to change them. They tried to make the Hummingbirds and Ratcat teeny bopper bands. They tried to make UMI and Custard into grunge. They just didn't fit with what Ruart wanted. I never knew Chris Murphy, although we did cross paths, he wouldn't know who I was. It's easy to make him the bad guy of the Ruart story because he was in the tower, making money while the bands beneath him never quite made it. But the Ruart thing was his idea, and he made it work to some degree. He was a pioneer, and yeah, he took his cut. In 1996, with Murphy, the only original guy left, Ruart was sold to BMG completely for $5 million. The sale went through the day before that year's ARIA Awards, when the Ruart band UMI would win six awards from nine nominations. And then the band would head straight to a US tour, playing the Ruart game of trying to break America. The Ruart name remained a logo on the releases of the bands who started on Ruart, but essentially it was just BMG, a label run in-house completely by BMG staff. Murphy, who had no real interest in the indie music scene, left the indie music scene. The label essentially finished in 2001, ending with contractually obligated best-ofs by The Hummingbirds and Ratcat. Over on their supposedly alternative arm Ra, they released a novelty single from a Big Brother contestant, Sarah Marie, named I'm So Excited, The Bum Dance. This is how the label ends. is where the terms indie and alternative start to get murky. However the word has been used and abused since, indie and alternative were the words that come from describing what they were not. They were independent from the major record labels, and they were an alternative to the mainstream commercial media. But Ruart was played by a major label, and distributed by a major label. They paid bands advances, and they owned their masters. But yet they promoted their indie acts to community radio and Triple J. The ultimate goal for the Hummingbirds, a band from the indie world, and for the Screaming Jets, a pretty commercial working man's pub rock band, was the same. They were just marketing them to the alternative kids, and even then, only in the beginning. So it's a bit much to remember Ruart as a label for alternative artists. They always had big commercial acts, and they kind of just took a couple of the most commercial sounding and commercial looking bands in the indie scene and signed them to pretty conventional major label deals. The second Wendy Matthews album, Lily, at Triple Platinum, is by far the most successful Ruart album. Still, the roster of acts on Ruart, especially from the alternative Triple J side, was impressive. And through the Youngblood compilations, they gave a whole bunch of new bands a spotlight, who would later find success elsewhere. 
Ruart are important for far more than that. They changed the way business was done at the indie level and forced labels like Orgogo and Waterfront to follow them to the major label breach, chasing hits and trying to break bands overseas. Ruart are also important because they released several important and wonderful records by several important and wonderful bands. The Hummingbirds, Ratcat and later UMI amongst others. Australian music in the 90s would end up being played by the rulebook written by Ruart. They started it, but funny thing was, they failed at their own game, and they left it for someone else to win. That's the Ruart story. Of course, they've just started, and there's nothing more I can say, neither should I, so I'll go now and leave you in peace. Thank you. This episode really, really owes a lot to Craig Matheson's book, The Sell-In. The book came out in November of 2000 and really captured the scene. Everything good about this podcast builds on Craig's work. He tells the story of early Ruart and really highlights how important and pioneering they were, but also how icaracy they were. Also a nod to Chris Murphy's own memoir called Murphy. It was self-published and a total vanity project. I always wanted to ask Chris about this stuff, but in his book, Ruart only gets a few pages. Ruart was not one of his great achievements. He was so successful at so many other things. Murphy died in 2021. In 2001, in Ruart's last year, a compilation was released to celebrate the history of Ruart with the really shit title of Rock Art and what looked like a cave painting of the Ruart logo on the cover. I'm not sure who bought it. There wasn't really a house sound. The label went through so many identities and the indie arm was just half the story. Makes sense then that disc one of the two disc rock art is a hodgepodge of UMI, Ratcat, Hummingbirds mixed with more commercial stuff like Wendy Matthews and Screaming Jets. The songs are great, the alternative ones and the other ones, but no human being has ever been in the mood to listen to it all on the same disc. Disc two is more interesting, some unreleased stuff from some of the bigger bands and also tracks from some of their less successful signings like Crash Politics, Martha's Vineyard and Trout Fishing in Quebec. It's a nice history, but rock art is long out of print and not available on any digital service. I've made a playlist of it which you can find on the website. Thanks for listening to this episode of Just Ace. It's been two weeks now since we've launched and the reaction has been incredible. I've been getting lots of emails and messages from people about how much they are enjoying the podcast, and it's really flattering, so thank you. It's been doing quite well on the Apple Podcast charts as well. If you have a moment, please leave me a rating or a review. It seems to really help. Now that things are going well, there will be more Just Ace things to come. Patrons who sign up will get an ebook of expanded scripts, and there's other ideas on the way. There's a link to the Patreon in the description. It's a very cheap Patreon compared to other podcasts. Please keep me from selling out to Mamma Mia. There's also a tipping service called Buy Me A Coffee, and a couple of you have bought me coffees, and thank you, I will be drinking those coffees. And if I don't make it clear, there are show notes to every episode, with lots of extra stuff, some personal photos, and all the music credits from every episode. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s, or go to JustAce90s.com to find out more about the podcast. And keep the messages and questions coming. I'm loving it. Next week, our first proper band profile. Thanks for listening.
Start again.